We're going to focus in our uh, Bible readings and study this morning on the Holy Spirit and Jesus. What do we see uh, of the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of our Lord and Savior, Jesus? Now, when you look through the Gospels, there are actually startlingly few references explicitly to the Holy Spirit and Jesus. We're not going to talk about the why of that in depth now. You can pick it up later, as Stephen has said, in the Q&A if you want to. But part of the reason may be what Anthony Thistleton calls the self-effacing character of the Spirit. And by that, he means that the Spirit doesn't draw attention to himself. That the Holy Spirit always, always points to Jesus. And that remains the litmus test of the work of the Spirit. Does this point to Jesus? So when they speak explicitly about the Holy Spirit and, and Jesus, the gospel writers concentrate on a couple of areas, and that's where we're going to focus this morning. They concentrate on Jesus' conception and birth, and secondly, they concentrate on the beginning of Jesus' public ministry, his baptism, temptations, and Nazareth. So that's where we're going to focus, and then I hope we'll have time before I finish to uh, pick up uh, what Paul talks about in terms of the Holy Spirit's part in the resurrection of Jesus. What do you long for? Now, maybe at this stage in the morning, as you watch people coming in with their blue Bob and Bert's cups of coffee... Uh, you are longing for a cup of coffee because you were up early getting the kids out and ready or you took the extra 10 minutes in bed and you're gasping for a coffee. Uh, you're longing for it. Or maybe when I ask what are you longing for, you think about holidays that are nearly there or more money or a different job or a good life for your children or a partner or to be a couple of stone lighter. I wonder what you long for. Because the things that we long for fill our minds, can become the content of our daydreams. Often we work for and look for the things we long for. I don't think it's stretching it too much to say that our lives might be shaped by the things we long for. One of my prayers for this week is that the people of God would long for more of God. Some of our forefathers and mothers in faith longed for more of God's Spirit. We've already seen this week that the work of the Holy Spirit doesn't begin at Pentecost, doesn't begin even with the earthly life of Jesus, that God, Father, Son, and Spirit is at work throughout the extent, the whole extent of time and eternity. So we saw yesterday when we looked at Genesis 1, that lovely picture of how in the beginning when the earth was formless and empty, that the Spirit of God hovered over the waters. The Spirit the Spirit of God in the Old Testament comes on particular people for particular tasks. Gideon, Samson, Othinel. The Spirit enables prophecy, Micah, Zechariah, and Joel. In Isaiah 63, the prophet recognizes the presence and work of the Spirit among the people of Israel on their long journey through the wilderness, guiding them, working among them. Listen to Isaiah 63, verses 11 to 13. 
Then his people recalled the days of old, the days of Moses and his people. Where is he who brought them through the sea with the shepherd of his flock? Where is he who set his Holy Spirit among them, who sent his glorious arm of power to be at Moses' right hand, who divided the waters before them to gain for himself the everlasting renown, who led them through the depths? Creation, the enabling of God's people and equipping, prophecy, guiding. But that activity, we've seen that already, has been context-specific and sporadic. And from time to time, through the pages of the Old Testament, we read it and we sense a longing among God's people for more of God's Spirit. Would it be, says Moses, that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his Spirit on them? He says that when the Spirit of God enables some to prophesy, but not all. And Joel, Joel who prophesies and looks to the day. In Joel 2.28, afterwards, I will pour out my Spirit on all people, Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will put my spirit in those days. A longing, a longing for more of God's spirit. And then, then a waiting That long period of waiting, probably about 400 years in the intertestamental period, where the heavens appear to be silent. Now, we know from the beginning of Luke's gospel that there were people who during those long years were faithful, who prayed, who looked to God. Zechariah and Elizabeth, Anna and Simeon, on whom the Holy Spirit rested and to whom it had been revealed by the Spirit that he would not see death before he'd seen the Lord's Messiah. And Luke, when he tells us the story of Jesus, opens his gospel account Not with Jesus' baptism, the beginning of his public ministry, not even with Jesus' physical birth. Luke begins the story of Jesus with four events, all of which emphasize and evidence the work of the Holy Spirit before Jesus is born. In Luke 1, and we read it in 15 to 17, uh, the prophecy comes that uh, Zechariah and Elizabeth's son is to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And speaking of John, Gabriel says to Zechariah, he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he's born. He'll bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. And then, then the angel speaks to Mary to tell her about the baby that she's about to bear. And the angel says to her, we read it in uh, Luke 1 and verse 35, the angel answers, the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Do you hear the echoes there? The Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Do you hear the echoes there of Genesis? And when Elizabeth hears Mary's greeting, 
the baby growing in Elizabeth's womb leaps and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And fourthly, Zachariah. Zachariah, who celebrates John's birth with a prophecy in the Holy Spirit, uh, Luke 2, 67. His father, Zachariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he's come to his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant, David. Now just notice Just notice what God is doing. In the Old Testament, we see the work of the Spirit in creation, in prophecy, in the filling of God's people. And now we see the beginning of a new creation. We see the Holy Spirit overshadowing Mary. We see prophecy restored. We see the enabling of God's people. Sometimes, sometimes when we take a step back and glance even at a section of salvation history and glance even at a section of what God is doing and has done, we've just got to say, wow. See it in Paul. Sometimes when he's writing, you see it in Romans. He's writing dense theology and he's writing about who God is and what he's done. And then he just breaks into a hymn of praise. It's as if he's standing back and just going, wow. As the wonder of what God has done and the wonder of who God is, is brought home to his heart by the Spirit. The Spirit at work in creation, anointing for leadership, enabling prophets and creating in the hearts of God's people a longing for more. And now, now Luke hints at it at the beginning of his gospel account of the life of Jesus, prophecies being restored. There's the beginning of a new creation. God's people are being filled with God's Spirit. God's grace and providence is astounding. Wow. When David, our single son, was uh, about two and a half, three, uh, we uh, sent him to a little play school in his pre-nursery school year. It's a really good play school, but they were just having a very difficult year, and the dynamics in the room were tough. And for two and a half year old Dave, that was a really challenging situation, and he was so brave. As his mother, I will never forget one day, there were big sash windows at the play school, Davy stood with tears streaming down his face in that window, and as we hand up waving, trying to smile and be brave, and I walked away and left him. Do you remember where we started on Monday in John chapter 16. The disciples are grieving. Jesus is teaching them that he is about to leave them and that the Holy Spirit will come. Jesus is starkly honest. Do you remember? He says, I know this is tough, but you need to know it's going to get worse. But he said, oh, we've got to read it. 
Uh, John 16. Sorry I didn't warn the folks uh, with the projection about this. Jesus is speaking. All this I've told you so that you won't fall away. They'll put you out of the synagogue. In fact, the time is coming when anyone who kills you will think they're offering a service to God. They'll do such things because they've not known the Father or me. I've told you this so that when their time comes, you will remember that I warned you about them. I didn't tell you this from the beginning because I was with you. But now I'm going to him who sent me. None of you asks me, where are you going? Rather, you're filled with grief because I've said these things. But very truly, I tell you, it's for your good that I'm going away. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. The disciples... The disciples are going to face challenges far beyond them. And Jesus, Jesus doesn't say to them, I've taught you well, you're up for this. Be brave and do your best and walk away. He does not leave them alone. The Holy Spirit will be sent. Wow. The provision of God for his people. Oh, the love that drew salvation's plan. Creation, prophecy, the coming of his spirit from time to time. And now, now as Jesus prepares to be born, there's the stirring of a new creation. There's prophecy restored. That salvation might be available for all who kneel at the cross. And that in the coming of the Spirit, we would never be left alone. Wow. Now in that context, come with me to the banks of the Jordan River. As we read from Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3, and we're just going to read verses 21 to 23. When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. Now, Jesus himself was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. He was the son, so it was thought, of Joseph. As he was praying, heaven was opened. Heaven, which had appeared silent for so long, is opened. Now Mark, when he gives his gospel account, uses really graphic language. He talks about heaven being torn open, echoing the language of Isaiah chapter 64. Oh, that you would rend, do you hear the longing? Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. And there's huge messianic significance in, the, in this descent of the Holy Spirit on Jesus as a dove 
dove, the symbol of the Spirit. And the, the, the Spirit and the voice, the Word, both testify in those moments that Jesus is the Son of God. The coming of the Messiah into the world was no longer future hope. It was present reality. And that fact was marked, shown by the coming of the Spirit. And again, and I know we've said it often this week, but again, we need to note the shift that comes with Jesus' incarnation. While in the past, the Spirit had been the occasional visitor, now the Spirit rests on Jesus. In the go-between God, John V. Taylor writes this, Jesus' continuous and total possession of the Spirit was, together with his resurrection, the ground on which the apostles came to be convinced that he was not only Messiah, but Son of God. His unique unity with the Father was, as they saw it, both given and attested by his unique relation with the Spirit. The heavens, silent for so long, now open, rent apart. The fact that Jesus, the fact that Jesus, Son of God, willingly submits himself to baptism is remarkable and speaks volumes about Jesus' nature. That's remarkable. But for Luke, that's not even the main thing. It's remarkable. But for Luke, even that, that Jesus, the Son of God, would submit himself to baptism, astounding. That's not even the main thing. The way he writes uh, his account, um, the, the fact that Jesus, when Jesus has been baptized is expressed as a participle. The main verb, the place where Luke wants our attention to focus, is the voice came from heaven. That's where Luke wants our focus to be. And that voice who comes from heaven says, you are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. These are words of affirmation, we'll speak about that in a minute, but they're not just words of affirmation. They describe the character of the mission and the work which lies ahead of Jesus. Two Old Testament passages are explicitly being referenced here. The first is Psalm 2 and verse 7, where the psalmist proclaims, I will tell of the decree of the Lord he said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. And Isaiah 42 and verse 1, which reads, Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. Two Old Testament passages being explicitly referenced in the word of God who comes from heaven. Both word and spirit, therefore affirming Jesus' sonship. Jago echoed it last night, word and spirit belong together. In the details that, you, that uh, Luke chooses to retell, he makes the significance of this time clear. Jesus is about 30, the stage when a young man would begin priestly ministry. Jesus at this new stage in ministry, and God speaks. I call myself a planner. My family call me a control freak. 
I like my lists. I begin most days with a fairly good outline of where I'm going to be in my head uh, at most parts of the day. My boys tease me uh, by asking me, what's the plan, mum? Because they know that even on holidays or in situations where I'm pretending to be laid back, that I do have a plan. Even in situations where I graciously try to ask others, what do you feel like doing today? You can finish that sentence. (laughs) Jesus at this crucial stage in his ministry. God the Father doesn't speak from heaven and say, got a plan, son. God the Father speaks from heaven and says, I love you. I love you. You're my son, the beloved. With you, I am well pleased. Now there's a bit of debate about who these words are meant for and who heard them. Uh, Did the crowd hear? Did John hear? What matters is that Jesus hears. These are words from the Father to the Son. The Spirit affirming that bond of love and trust that exists between the Father and the Son. Crucially important, the Spirit affirming the bond of love and trust that exists between the Father and the Son. The life of Jesus is marked by a relationship of love and trust with his Father. So in the garden, Jesus says, Abba, as he wrestles with the suffering which lies ahead of him. And the Holy Spirit, that same Holy Spirit, invites men and women and children into a relationship of love and trust with God. Dave spoke about assurance on Saturday. I picked it up when we looked at Romans 8. Jago highlighted it so wonderfully last night in Colossians 1. As he did with Jesus... So with us, the Holy Spirit affirms the bond of love and trust between the Father and us through the Son, testifying with our spirit that we're God's children. And we saw it in Romans 8. We're invited to live our lives not with fist-clenched determination to be better or good enough or even nice. We're invited to live our lives out of that relationship of love and trust. So here's the question. Is your life, is my life, marked by that relationship of love and trust with God, Father, Son, and Spirit? Do you know that in your heart? Do others see it in your life that you respond somehow differently because you're living out of a relationship of love and trust. You know you're held. You're my son, says the voice from heaven, God's voice. The beloved, with you I am well pleased. Word and spirit affirm Jesus as son 
and as suffering servant. Isaiah 42 reads like this, verse 1. Here's my servant whom I will uphold, my chosen in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. Now, from his baptism, the Holy Spirit, and again, it depends what word the different gospel writers want to use, either propels or leads Jesus out into the wilderness to be tempted. Satan was about to tempt Jesus to think that sonship and suffering were mutually exclusive, about to tempt Jesus with an easy, cost-free messiahship. One of the distortions, and it might be a hurt that we carry, one of the distortions which has crept into teaching on the work of the Holy Spirit is that life in the Holy Spirit means no suffering, no struggle. That is a lie. Let us not be led astray. Life in the power of God's Spirit does not mean avoidance of struggle or temptation or even suffering. It does mean trust and a willingness to depend on God no matter what. This is so important. Word and Spirit affirm Jesus as son and as servant who's going to face suffering. There's a wonderful example of this in Acts chapter 12. We met some of the Herod dynasty yesterday when we looked at Paul standing before Agrippa and uh, Bernice and Festus giving his testimony in the hope that believing that it was possible that even Herod and Bernice and Festus might become Christians. In Acts 12, Luke tells us that King Herod, probably King Herod Agrippa I, arrested some who belonged to the church. Among those whom he arrested were James, the brother of John and Peter. And King Herod Agrippa I had James put to death by the sword. And Peter was imprisoned, probably, you would have expected, to await trial and persecution. What can be done in response to that persecution? Well, the people of God gather to pray. Let's read this story from Acts chapter 12. And we'll pick it up at verse 5. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains, and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said, and the chains fell off Peter's wrists. Then the angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals, and Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel said. And Peter followed him out of the prison. But he had no idea what the angel was doing, that what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. They passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself and they went through it. 
when they'd walked the length of one street. Suddenly the angel left them. Then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. When this had dawned on him, uh, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people were gathered and were praying. Peter knocked at the outer entrance and a servant named Rhoda came to answer the door. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed that she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter's at the door. You're out of your mind, they told her. If we'd asked any of the people in Mary's house when they gathered to pray, if they believed that God could rescue Peter, I'd have no doubt that they would have said yes. The word that Luke uses to describe the way in which they were praying, which is as translated as earnestly, is the same word that's used to describe the way in which Jesus prays in the Garden of Gethsemane. They were praying earnestly. They were praying fervently, unremittingly, that Peter would be released. And in the power of God's Spirit, he was. Thanks be to God. But while Peter was prayed for fervently and knew that release, I would guess, and I don't think it's moving beyond scripture, I would guess that many had also prayed for James. And yet James is executed. Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, was not saved from stoning. And in the persecution which follows Stephen's death, we read that Saul begins to destroy the church, going from house to house, dragging off women and men and putting them in prison. And we've got to rejoice in the full witness of Scripture, to rejoice and thank God that in the power of the Spirit, Peter is released from prison. And with integrity to recognize that James wasn't. And Stephen wasn't miraculously lifted up and saved from stoning. And that many were persecuted. And with integrity we ask, what about all those who weren't released? And to that biblical list, to Stephen, to the folks, to James, to the folks persecuted uh, by Saul, we probably have names that we'd want to add. People we've prayed earnestly for, for healing, and who haven't been physically healed. Servants of God for whom we prayed for protection, and who suffered great physical or emotional harm. Relationships which weren't healed and restored. God does heal, may intervene in the power and grace of his spirit. I believe those gifts are for today. But nowhere, nowhere can I see scriptural evidence to affirm that being a child of God and living in the power of God's spirit means avoidance of suffering means necessary, inevitable healing. It was not so for Jesus. 
We see it so clearly as the heavens are opened and the dove descends and the voice from heaven proclaims, this is my son, the beloved, with whom I'm well pleased. Son of God is not going to be saved from suffering. We saw it on Tuesday in Romans 8. Assurance of being a child of God straight away, seen in the context of creation which still groans. Now my guess is that there are a variety of opinions in this tent as to whether God wills suffering or not. There are different views on that. For me, I believe that suffering is a consequence of the brokenness of fallen creation and therefore not explicitly sent by God. You might differ with me. That's okay. That's not the issue here. The primary issue is what do lives lived in the power of God's spirit look like in the midst of suffering? Come with me to Gethsemane. We're going to read Mark chapter 14. Mark 14, verse 32. They went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. He took Peter. James and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Going a little further, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything's possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. As he anticipates his death, Jesus, Jesus, secure in that relationship of love and trust with his Father, trusts his Father enough to be honest with him, doesn't hide his feelings doesn't pretend that it's all right. He shares his agony with his father and acknowledges his father's power. Everything is possible for you. Yet not what I will, but what you will. What does life in the power of God's spirit look like when we're suffering? when illness looms, when the world feels as if it's falling apart. What does it look like? It looks like a depth of trust that enables us to share the reality of how we're feeling with God. It looks like trust that allows ourselves to be held by God, even when it feels as if the world is falling apart. Hannah, Hannah of whom we read in 1 Samuel, had so much to be thankful for. She had a husband who loved her. She had a home. And yet Hannah lives with heartache. She longs for a child. 
goes on for years. Made worse for the fact that, by, that Penina taunts her. What does Hannah do with that? She brings her weeping. She brings her longing to the temple and shares it with the God whom she knows stands with her, even in the midst of her agony. Shares it with the God who holds her. A few years ago, it's a number of years, so forgive me if you've heard this story before because I've told it often. A number of years ago, uh, we went with the boys uh, to a theme park and uh, there was a ride called Air. And uh, in my innocence, the boys took me and uh, I, uh, uh, we got in. I knew I was in trouble when little ankle bands were put around my ankles. <laughs> and uh, the ride started, lifted us up bad enough and then tilted, right? So that you're being sitting, uh, looking down uh, at the ground, held in only by the ankle bands and a sort of thing that came over your shoulders. Um, I wish I could tell you what the first ride was like. I've no idea. Uh, it is a spasm of terror. Uh, my eyes were closed. Uh, my arm uh, with doing that silly mummy thing of reaching over to try and hold the boys in as if I could uh, as they hurtled towards what I felt was inevitable death. Uh, and uh, we, uh, we went round and then the boys said, oh, let's do it again. Uh, and the second time I kept my eyes open and uh, we went round. The third time the lad said, let's queue for the front row, mummy. And uh, do you know, it was fantastic. Uh, I relaxed into it, held by these things. I put my arms out. It felt like flying. It was brilliant. Fourth time, the... The fourth time as we whizzed around and came in, the sort of landing deck was about there, it stopped. And we were held hanging like that, about six feet off the ground, waiting for somebody to start this thing again. The girl behind us started to cry. Uh, Folks began to say they were very sore. Eventually, it sort of chugged in. As we walked away, because I'm a preacher, I said to the boys, you know, it's such a pity, such a pity that that stopped at the end because it would have been a brilliant illustration about learning to trust. Because at the beginning, I was so scared, but I had to learn to trust uh, that the wrist ba- or the ankle bands and the shoulder pads would hold me in as we went round. We'll give Dave the credit because he's here. I can't remember which boy it was who said it. But one of the boys, as we walked away, said this, but mummy, even when it stopped, we were still held. What? We sang it. What does life lived in the power of the Spirit look like in the midst of suffering? looks like a willingness to hold that tension. The God who released Peter but didn't release James and still pray for healing. It looks for trust, like trust. A trust that shares the reality with God, doesn't put on a brave face, shares the reality and allows ourselves to be held, nestled close to the Father, even when it feels like the world is falling apart.
Abba. Abba whispers Jesus in Gethsemane. This is my son, the beloved, with whom I'm well pleased. Just notice, just notice how the spirit then stirs a longing for justice. It's there in the Isaiah 42 verse 1 uh, verse. I've put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Jesus himself picks that up in the other block of teaching which we see on the relationship between the Holy Spirit and Jesus in the Gospels. Uh, the beginning of Jesus at uh, public ministry when he goes uh, to uh, Nazareth. When he goes to, let's read, he goes, uh, returns to Galilee, uh, Luke 4, verse 14. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he'd been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it's written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind. To set the oppressed free. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. It is a proclamation that he is the Messiah. And a strong statement of what that anointing by the Spirit was about to bring good news to the poor, release for captives, sight for the blind, the oppressed going free. Jesus returns to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. It's like a refrain going through those initial chapters of Luke that Jesus is acting in the power of the Spirit. And he reads Isaiah 61, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me too. Now, let us not cheapen the work of the Spirit by implicitly or uh, in practice ending that sentence with something like, the Spirit of the Lord has upon me because he has anointed me to enjoy fantastic worship. Have a great church that's for me and my friends and people like me. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, and yet again, it's not all about us. We're sent out. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. When the world looks at the church, and thank God that Christianity is so strong in this part of the world, but when the world looks at the church, does it look and see a church that looks like it, it is and is proclaiming freedom for prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, setting oppressed free, proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor? Or does the world look at the church and think, well... That looks like a club to me. This week, you might have been at a seminar run by International Justice Mission. You might have talked to folks from CAP and others who in the tent uh, remind us of that God's call to be a people who live in the light of God's call to live justice and mercy. But let's bring it even closer to home. 
What does good news for the poor? What does freedom for prisoners? What does recovery of sight to those who are blind look like in your community? Would the community in which your church is placed miss you if you closed your doors? Two congregations I was with recently had the integrity and a depth of trust in God to answer that question honestly. First congregation said, a lot of children from the community have their parties in our hall. I think if we closed, they'd miss us as a party venue. The other said, they might, they might miss our annual coffee morning for Christian aid. Spirit of the Lord is upon us because of the provision of God the Father, because of the sacrificial death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus, the Spirit of the Lord is upon us and he has anointed us to proclaim good news to the poor, to proclaim freedom for prisoners and recovery of sight to the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, what are we doing about that? We didn't do a story so far this morning, so we're going to do a quick recap. Our first word was wow. As we remembered God's provision that we are not left alone to face the challenge of witness, the work of God's Spirit through time and eternally, moving from occasional prophecy, uh, preparing the way to Jesus, for Jesus, resting on Jesus, and now in all who follow him, we are not left alone as we testify about Jesus. Then, at Jesus' baptism, the Holy Spirit and the Word affirm Jesus as son and suffering servant, and the Holy Spirit witnesses with our spirit that we're God's children, that we too might live in that relationship of love and trust into which we're invited by the Holy Spirit, and live in that relationship of love and trust even when it feels as if the world's upside down. And as Jesus begins his public ministry, he finds Isaiah 61 in the scroll that's handed to him. And he describes a ministry in the power of the Spirit as one in which good news is proclaimed to the poor and freedom proclaimed for captives. And very briefly as we finish, for the third strand of teaching about the Holy Spirit and Jesus, we move out of the Gospels and back into Paul. Uh, Diego, I told the folks yesterday uh, that all of us wanted to teach Romans 8 and uh, that it was a testimony to uh, your grace and to Dave's that I was getting uh, to do it. And we've been in Romans 8 uh, a lot. Romans 8 verse 11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. And we know, we know how Romans 8 continues and completes. I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, 
neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Death is defeated. Nothing, nothing can separate God's people from God's love in Christ Jesus our Lord. Those who are caught up by the Spirit of God live in the knowledge and experience of that truth. William Willimon is a bishop in the United States uh, of America in the Methodist Church there. Uh, He tells this story. I don't know where there's a shadow in your life. I don't know what dead end you're dealing with. I don't know what you've lost or where you may be hemorrhaging. I do know that Jesus is the Lord of life and that he's the master even over death. Big part of my job, he goes on, is to send pastors to churches. Now, this could never happen here, but this is what he says. Some of those churches are so difficult or so dead and deadly that sometimes the pastor doesn't want to go there. Uh, the pastors are afraid that they might catch what the church has got. One of my district superintendents was telling me that a pastor was resisting his appointment, protesting that church is hopeless. There's no way to turn round the downward slide there. It's dead and I'll just die if you send me there. And the district superintendent defended the appointment by saying, well, I'll tell the bishop what you said, but I need to warn you. This bishop truly believes that the resurrection is a fact. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) He actually believes, I wasn't meant to be pointed. He actually believes that Jesus bodily, really, truthfully rose from the dead on Easter. So you need to know that when you say something like that church is dead, it really doesn't mean a thing to the bishop because he believes that Easter's true. Do we believe that Easter's true? The Holy Spirit, Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead, he's the one who seeks and takes initiatives at work before us. He's the one who's been at work in creation and through all of time and eternity. He's the one that draws, invites us into that loving relationship with God God the Father and Jesus. He is the one who assures us that we're children of God. He's the one who enables us to trust and who gently rests our head in God when it feels like the world is falling apart. He's the Spirit who is sent from the Father and the Son to dwell within all who give their lives to Jesus. Thanks be to God. Wow. Let's pray. Come, Holy Spirit. Breathe, O oh breathe, thy loving Spirit into every troubled, trembling, broken heart. Because we're all troubled. And it's right that we would tremble. And we all know brokenness.
breathe thy spirit where we're feeling strong and excited about the challenges ahead that we might not rely on our own strength. In the silence, let's just listen for God and allow ourselves to hear his voice, to feel his touch. God is here. God's spirit is with us. Thanks be to God. Amen.